Welcome to I Had to Say It, the podcast where I talk about things that I feel need talking about, and sometimes they're not getting the attention they deserve. And your feelings, they're not under consideration. The podcast you're about to listen to contains at least one of the following. Strong language, disturbing topics, abusive opinions, generally things that aren't appropriate for little kids or overly sensitive people. So, if any of that stuff's going to get your nose out of joint, this is your chance to turn it off. Um, all right, so, hi everybody. Today I have my very first guest. Uh, I have Ariel Cooksey, who is the host of the podcast Malice, which is a true crime podcast. Honestly, the first real true crime thing I got into, which I'm putting that directly on you because... It's a different format than what I've seen with other people doing true crime. You with you have the narrative, and then you do the follow up episodes with the with your feelings about it and your mm-hmm. information on it. And honestly, that's the first time I've encountered that. I mean, it may be out there. I don't know. Like I said, I'm not really a true crime guy, mm-hmm. I, or at least I I wasn't. Um, <laughs> between you and a couple other people, I guess I'm a convert now. I uh, that that was always more my wife's thing. Really, she she is you know, all the way back to Unsolved Mysteries and oh, yeah. Who the Bleep Did I Marry and yes. <laughs> all those ones, you know, and Snapped. And I don't know how many times I've come home and <laughs> if I piss her off, they're never going to find the body. <laughs> I'm done. And there's been a few times where, like, we've been in the car and stuff and I'll be playing an episode through the, uh, the car's stereo, you know, with the Bluetooth. And she's sitting there and she'll know something about the case just based on like the buildup information. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's, that's the lady that fed her husband to the pigs or <laughs> <laughs> right. that's the guy who had 37 bodies in his crawl space. And I'm going, how the, why? I don't even know. Okay. It's, it's <laughs> there's that true, true crime lover right yeah, there. She, uh, I'm the same way. <laughs> Yeah, it seems to be a lot of the people in my life these days are all about knowing where the bodies are. (laughs) Look, handy skills. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Well, like I said, that's just, it keeps me behaving. (laughs) Like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy, I I like to think I have a pretty strong moral core where I wouldn't do anything that requires me getting whacked, but sure. (laughs) It's, it's also reaffirming to know like, dude, she could make it look like an accident. (laughs) knowing my wife she'd probably just kink the hose on my on my breathing machine while i'm sleeping (laughs) (laughs) you must have rolled over (laughs) the damnedest thing it looks like the cat was chewing on the power cord or something i don't know Uh, yeah it's uh god bless her but you know like i said i i try not to give her any reasons to want to murder me in my sleep so right right you know generally good uh good way to go about life well, in general yeah i mean sure i try to be decent that's kind of one of my reoccurring things i'm always talking about is stop being such a bunch of shitheads you know and yeah i i just something in my makeup does not allow me to be a hypocrite for whatever reason so mm-hmm. i try to live the stuff instead of just like being out there going hey you should be decent people and it's like i really don't think it's hard to do so right i mean yeah it can be don't get, I, I, I don't want to act like I'm some kind of saint. There are a lot, I've, I've spent 25 years in the service industry. There's been a lot of times where I've wanted to strangle somebody. <laughs> and, 
you know, the, the difference is I, I don't. So, yep. and uh, yep. that's actually kind of how I got into the doing the podcast thing was when I was working, I had a, a, a pressure release because yeah, I would get frustrated from dealing with people all day, but as a back of the house person, usually in a situation where the customers can't hear me or see me acting like an ass, I could just blow up and usually all the other twisted individuals that are food service people would laugh right along with me and be like, you're right. <laughs> I, if you've ever worked food service, my God. <laughs> it, it, they're, they're a different breed, particularly when you yeah. get to lifers. I mean, I think mm-hmm. we all go through it at some point, but when you get somebody that's willing to commit that long to being in that pressure cooker slash. Oh God. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's something wrong with us. And, uh, I always, actually, I, I worked with a, I worked with the catering department for one of the local culinary schools here. And I was kind of, it was before they instituted having teacher's assistants, but that's basically, I was a TA and, it was kind of one of those things where we'd get these incoming freshmen and you'd get the grizzled old guys that just finally wanted that piece of paper that said they knew their stuff. And they just kind of would look at me and be like, because at the time I was in my, my mid twenties, I wasn't anything impressive to these guys. They're like, yeah, whatever. You're still wet behind your ears. But then we'd get the like high school kids that are coming out. Like I'm going to be the next famous chef. Oh boy. And I'd be looking at them going, if you're doing this because you think you're going to get rich, stop. If you don't have something wrong with you, you will if you keep up with this. I mean, it, it rubs off a little bit, you know, but that's that's one of those things. And, and people laugh at me about this, but pretty much from birth until 25, people are babies to oh, me. Without a doubt. <laughs> just sweet, precious little baby angels. Oh, like they're... <laughs> you get them and it's just like, oh, honey, just came out of your mouth right i and i I used to get that a lot when i was even that age because Mm -hmm. i i've I've said it before here and there but i've I've always been one of those people where people be like dude you're an old soul or i was i was a little kid like way over serious i and and maybe it was just because i was weird but like my mom even said like when you were a baby you didn't make any sense to me because you never slept and you'd started doing all these things like this little old man and you'd be walking around griping at three. And I was like, that, that makes sense. Tracks. Yep. And, and, <laughs> yeah. And I haven't really gotten any better. I've just gotten older with less hair and more chins. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, and the thing about it is though, my mom used to say about the whole not sleeping thing. She's like, you wouldn't mm-hmm. cry. You, you weren't colicky or anything but I'd come in to check on you at like midnight just to see if you were okay. And you'd be in there standing at the edge of your crib, holding onto the railing, looking at me like you were disappointed. (laughs) I'm like, you sure that's not your baggage, mom? I mean, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze you here or anything, but that sounds more like a toddler can't really look at an adult with disappointment. Can they? And she goes, you did. I'm just, all right. If you say so. She's like, oh yeah, and you were little, and Grandma used to parade you around, and it's like, I don't know, I don't exactly have an didactic memory, but I do retain stuff for. I, I used to be really smart, but too many years in the industry that kind of warped it a little bit. But I used to retain things really well, and I do have these memories of like being a little kid, 
in a time mm-hmm. frame where it's like a lot of people don't retain stuff from that age, but whatever. <laughs> and sure, I like I started really reading very early on. Like I w- I could functionally read and comprehend at like three. That and, is pretty amazing when people can do that. Yeah. And but that was one of those other things where people are like, oh, he's got such an old soul. And like, no, he's just wired weird. And like my my grandmother at one point, my I have a couple older cousins that were old enough they were in like middle school and they were in theater and they mm-hmm. were reading, reading lines for some school play or something and i was sitting there because we were some family thing and i was mm-hmm. sitting there going through and i i was following in the script and i got to one part and i'm like what's this word that word's wrong <laughs> and they were like you don't know that you're three <laughs> oh, that, that doesn't have a ph or a, that doesn't have a that doesn't have a c it's got a p and there, it was like a phonetic "f" instead of "c" or whatever. And oh God! So they start freaking out, and they pick me up and take me down into the kitchen where all the families like gathered around the table getting dinner ready. And they're like, uh-huh. "He can read." I'm like, <laughs> and, and my uncle, who was the the oldest of all my mom's siblings, is like, "He's three. He can't read." And he was their their dad. He's like, uh, "He's too little to be reading. He's just following the words, and he's." probably picking things up from you talking they're like no he he asked questions and oh my, my grandmother from like across the room goes oh no he can read put something <laughs> in front of and, and, and i'm just and i i remember my grandma sitting in the chair on the opposite side of the kitchen going no give him something to read bill and so my uncle's like okay this is a load of crap and he went and got the newspaper and set it down in front of me and i was like today yesterday council said what's a council and like asking stupid questions about whatever this article he put in front of me was and he looks at my mom and goes how did you do that <laughs> and my mom just goes he did it we, we just we just read to him when he was little and he wouldn't sleep and he started reading to himself yeah i mean you know i know in uh in my family's case you know i'm i'm the middle of three kids and um we we're all kind of different ages, but um, we all just started spontaneously reading at one point. Yeah. Like that's... one day, we didn't have to go through like the flashcards or, you know, phonetic hunks and chunks like they call them at my yeah. daughter's school. Yeah. It's just Any sort of stuff they got now. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and that's all great, you know, but like I went into kindergarten reading. Um, you know, I was. I guess four, about four when I started reading, um, you know, that it's, uh, it's not terribly common, but it's also, you know, there are lots of kids who just spontaneously, whenever they're ready, whenever their brain's there. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it says something that we're all attracted to doing this kind of stuff too. (laughs) (laughs) There's a type. There is a type. Yeah. And I got to be honest with doing the whole podcast. I think I've actually, like I said, I kind of got into it with the downtime and mm-hmm. for me, for me, it was a release valve and I'd like to get into why, why you started doing it too. Um, but it's, I've just met so many different cool people, but I keep finding these little threads where it's like, you know, I never would have thought we had that in common, but all right, <laughs> rock and roll. Cool. Right. <laughs> so um, I guess just kind of, to like I've sort of outlined for anybody that's listening I I mean obviously I don't have a huge audience at the moment and I whoever does listen to I really encourage them to go check out your show but 
Um, I wanted to just kind of ask, why did you start doing true crime stuff? I mean, (laughs) I, I, in the interest of being prepared, I don't want to be all like creepy or anything. I did do a little due diligence and like Google you and stuff. So I do know a little bit of your background. Sure. If you'd like to bring it up and talk about that stuff. Sure. But, no, I'm, um, I'm an open book. So, because, yeah, but I mean, what, what made you decide to go? I want to talk about all these situations where things kind of horribly happened and, get, well, and delve deeper into it. Um, I've always been fascinated by what makes people tick. So that kind of played out in a lot of different ways in my life. I was an actress for about 20 years. Um, you know, and you have to be able to empathize in order to be convincing when you're an actor. Um, but I also, my mom told me I always had this really strong, um, sense of justice, like wanting to see things. Um, she said when I was four, I saw, uh, it was winter time and I saw a homeless man, um, on the side of the road and, um, he, he didn't have a coat. And so I asked my mom if I could give him my coat and it wouldn't have done him much good as tiny as I was, but it was one of those things that was just sort of, um, and I don't know, maybe it was because I was a middle child. And so I was often like the mediator between my siblings, um, you know, and also, you know, keenly aware that like, well, he gets the, he gets all the privileges and responsibilities and my little sister gets babied. So, and then here I am in the middle, (laughs) (laughs) middle child syndrome, maybe, um, no touch, just a touch. Um, on the other hand, it's a early sign of character too. Oh, you know, shouldn't, you shouldn't slight that. It's, you know, not every, not everybody has it. I mean, just being honest, there are people out there that are about as about as stand up as a slice of wet white bread. So I've covered a few. <laughs> yeah, a couple of seasons worth. Yeah, um, but yeah. So I guess I was in fourth grade, uh, and my family took a trip to San Antonio. This is an unusual thing. We were very poor growing up. Um, but there was, we were on the river walk and there was this giant bookstore at the very end of it. And while we did not have a lot of money, my mom had a hard time turning down getting books if we wanted books, you know? So uh, we all, she told us we could each pick out two. And I stumbled upon these books, children's books, just <laughs> put that, let's put a pin in that. Okay. We'll come back to yeah. it. Um <laughs> I found these books called Be the Judge, Be the Jury. And um, (laughs) that appealed to me because I was also into those like choose your own adventure books and that kind of thing. It was like, I want to say in the matter, right? So, (laughs) Honestly, I think I read all of those when I was a kid. Yes. It's, it's, you know, uh, never short of opinions, right? (laughs) (laughs) I should be able to weigh in on these things. So the two that I picked... One was the trial of Alger Hiss, who was uh, a double agent. He worked for the CIA during the Red Scare and was ultimately um, found guilty of treason. And then there was also the the other one that I got, <laughs> children's books, just <laughs> was the trial of Lizzie Borden. Oh, lovely. Uh-huh. <laughs> and... <laughs> 
So I, you know how they have like pictures sometimes like right before you get into the chapter? Yeah, the, the little header pictures. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And we're going to pause right here for a quick break and then we'll come back to more of the interview. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. So... Anyone who doesn't know, Lizzie Borden was put on trial for um, bludgeoning her father and stepmother to death with a hatchet. Um, And this picture was of her father with his face unrecognizable in the crime scene photo. Yeah, that wouldn't hit the shelves today. <laughs> no. And so I was nine, and, and I'm going to borrow the expression from my favorite murder, but in this purely murderino way, I was like, this is terrible. I need to know everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I can, I can completely see that. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess I was bitten by the bug pretty early. I loved Unsolved Mysteries. Um, anytime Forensics Files came on, I was just kind of, uh, you know, fascinated with that. And I really am, weirdly, I am fascinated by the forensic side of things. Like, you know, my 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 schooling is in, you know, like the more soft sciences kind of stuff. But the fact that these people are so ingenious in how they test oh, yeah. for these things. It's just mind boggling. Um, but yeah, so basically I, I went to school on a scholarship for musical theater <laughs> and I am not a competitive person is all I can tell you. <laughs> not a good fit uh, for theater. Yeah. Um, so I changed my major, I changed universities and I switched to <laughs> because I am also super indecisive, psychology, women's studies, and uh, English literature. So I'm degreed in all of those. So a, 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 a triple threat. Which <laughs> None of which sure. will get you a job. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, it's not, not entirely true. You could get a job teaching those particular things. If you're you lucky. Degree out of that if you're lucky. Yeah. If, yeah, if somebody that's... dies, I mean... I mean, so I basically was like, I got done and I started working with emotionally disturbed children. Yeah, yeah, that can be a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot. And um, I loved the kids. We were all paired with campuses where our strengths were um, geared towards the population of emotionally disturbed children. So I was sent to a campus that had, I mean, this was K through five, and these kids tended to be more along the lines of self-harm, and, um, you know, several of them had suicidal ideations, um, attempts, not really, but, like, they were, 
they they needed somebody who was stable and somebody who could you know be that sort of connect with them on a on an emotional level because a lot of them you know had these problems because of dysfunctional home lives and the things they were witnessing that's not always the case in emotional disturbance but you see it a lot and of the 13 kids that i had 10 of them had had active CPS cases for sexual assault against them. So that's related to self-harm in a lot of cases among children who don't understand really what's happening to them. Um, So anyway, it was very difficult. And it was, I was at a stage in my life where I couldn't go home without taking it with me. And I realized after a while, I just couldn't do that anymore. So a lot of sense. Yeah. So I went back to school and got my master's degree in sociology. And then my doctoral work was in social psychology. I wasn't planning on pursuing a doctorate, but uh, my, my professors were like, you're an idiot. If you walk with a master's degree, you need, you need to do this. You're good at it. And I'm the first, I'm the first person to tell you that I suck at things and the things I suck at. Right. But I also think it's important. And here's one of those I had to say at moments. I think it's important for people to recognize the things they're good at. It's okay to realize that you're good at things and to give yourself that credit. So definitely (laughs) not enough people do that. You don't want me doing your taxes, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) well, that's okay. I, that's where I'm good. I, uh, I'm very creative with, with numbers and stuff. I actually, some of the coursework I went back to school for since being laid off is, uh, accounting stuff. Cause I was like, well, looking at my assorted stuff I've gotten into over the years. And mm-hmm. like when I was working with the, co- the, uh, college with the culinary program, I was taking classes the whole time cause they were paid for. And why not? I'm I'm not right. the guy to walk away from free anything. Right. So, so <laughs> Amen. So I, I I got my culinary degree, which it's yeah, it's it's an associate's. It's not I just early on I figured out as bright as I was, I didn't have the proper temperament for academia. Oh god. So, I, truth and, be told, and, I didn't either. I loved the classwork. <laughs> yeah, I the culture I, was garbage. Yeah, no, I'm not that guy. And since, especially in my younger days when I was kind of a hothead and really had no filter, I mean, I I had a, a few instances even going back to high school where it's like, they would have thrown me out if they could get away with it. But, <laughs> but Just on the side of the line? <laughs> well, no, it was really more like, thumbing my nose at the line instead of towing it because it was uh, I was I was like I said I as a kid I was fairly gifted I was in like accelerated learning programs and Mm -hmm. crap like that and so when high school rolled around I started taking AP courses my my junior year I was taking a full AP load so I was doing double credits on everything my whole senior year was basically a blow-off it was I was, I mean, like I was in the, in in my hometown, like the music program is a really big deal. Mm -hmm. Like my high school band competed at a collegiate level. Yeah. And, and I was in the symphonic band and played band and 
I played football, did did some sports. It was in the yearbook. But my senior year was all like classes I either left the campus for, or <laughs> like I had to go to the local college for some of my classes. And I had enough credits to graduate where I could have just walked. But I was in all these other programs where I didn't want to leave school. Sure. I didn't. I didn't want to quit the band. I mean, we we can we we took second place at nationals my senior year and first place my junior year. And that's at a triple A collegiate level. So it was like, it was a big deal. The, 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 the trophy was like six feet tall. It was a big trophy. Whoa. I didn't want to, I didn't want to walk away from that. That was awesome. Right. And, <laughs> and I was like the graphic, the co-graphic design editor for our yearbook where we were mm-hmm. going through and like, basically it was a glorified retoucher. We went through and cleaned up pictures and, nice. and you know, unblurried people's faces or <laughs> you know things like that it was it was not anything glorious but it, it, it gave me an excuse to hang out in the computer lab all day sure and, you know and that was back in the 90s so it was a big deal mm-hmm. <laughs> and um and that was so i but that was kind of like well known throughout the faculty that i was there more or less because i wanted to be not because i had to be yeah and i kind of was a cocky ass about the whole thing because like I, <laughs> I I took uh accounting class my senior year but it was first period and for me at the time I was just really early to be in school I seven seven thirty I wanted to go have breakfast or something right gross and <laughs> I'm I, not I a had a t- person oh me neither and <laughs> but the teacher was trying to handle it like oh I'm getting you ready for college well, no, you're doing the same thing all the high school teachers say where they're like, college, they're not going to let you slack off. And as opposed to you know, your professor coming in and in his pajamas. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> this guy, this guy, the first day of class says, in this course, you're going to work on the computers and you're going to work at your own pace. And mm-hmm. as long as you meet these benchmarks, that's, that's what your grade's based on. And I, I looked at this little syllabus that he handed us and there was nothing on there about attendance. There was nothing on there about you know, being in class, it just said, have your work done by these dates. Yep. And that was, that was on a Monday on Thursday, I handed him the entire semester's worth of homework and said, I'll see you for finals. (laughs) And he was like, you can't do that. And I said, it doesn't say anywhere in the syllabus that I can't do that. It says, have the work done by these dates and it's all done. I don't, that's amazing. Attendance is not mandatory. I'm not coming back to class. This is too damn early. (laughs) And oh my God, yeah. yeah, so he dragged me down to the dean's office and, it's, and was like, Aaron is being insubordinate and subversive in the class. And I brought all my books and my, and the paper with, and I said, this is what he handed us on day one. Mm-hmm. Nowhere in that paper does it state anything about attendance being relevant to my grade. I right. handed him all the homework. If I screwed up, he can flunk me because it's wrong. Mm-hmm. But I kept a copy of this and I'm going to compare it to whatever he turns in for my grades. And if there's one thing that's wrong with it, I want to pass automatically and I want him written up. And he looked at me and he goes, what do you think you're doing? I said, you're trying to punish me. We're keeping this fair. And yep. Like my, my mom actually was uh, worked in the school district with ED and LD kids too. And like my grandmother was a principal and a bunch of my cousins were involved in is as educators. So I kind of had a little Mm -hmm. bit of a family reputation within the system as well. (laughs) And they just kind of looked at me and went, okay, you know, technically you're right, but you're being an ass about this. And I went, <laughs> technically, I'm going to drop my little brother off for class in the morning because I have a, a younger brother who I had a car. 
So he rode yeah. to school with me. I was like, I'm going to drop him off and then I'm going down the cafe down the street and I'm going to have breakfast and a cup of coffee. And then I'm going to come back to second period because I don't have to go <laughs> to his class. That's fantastic. And, and they looked at the paper, looked at him, and they said, you might want to revise this because he's kind of got you on this one. And they said, could you at least be decent about it? And I said, no, I'm, have you heard him lecture? He's boring as hell. I'm not coming in for this every morning. <laughs> and they, they kind of looked at me and went, Ugh. And so I went to the cafe down the street for breakfast every morning for the rest of the semester. That is awesome. And, uh, I'll tell you though. I mean, yeah. I've had, I had, uh, people, people didn't care for me much when I was in my master's program. Cause I fucked the curve like <laughs> on the regular. Um, so one semester, <clears throat> get this, I'm taking six hours teaching nine hours. My I'm defending my, uh, master's thesis and I gave birth three days before the semester started. Oh, Jesus. And because I didn't want to have to spend all that time doing schoolwork during the semester, I turned in all my work on the 10th day of the semester. <laughs> uh, and all of yeah, a sudden, everyone else's excuses were bullshit. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. That, 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 that is fan-friggin-tastic. I... <laughs> I applaud you dearly for that. That is, I, I love it. They were just like, how the fuck did you do this? And I was like, because I have a brand new baby and because I can't sleep anyway. And so I might as well get this shit done. I mean, exactly. one of the classes was just like 10 chapters worth and a reflection paper on each chapter. Oh it's, God. Yeah. It's like That's one page paper. Thing. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's the perfect assignment to do at two o'clock in the morning when the baby's colicky. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, I, I would have been in that class like right on. <laughs> and probably they would all focused on hating me instead. Oh God. I'm just, it's, and I'm fine with it. It is what it is. Yeah. I, not everybody's going to like me and I'm, oh, I'm thoroughly okay with that. Um, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it used to affect me more, but anyway, so I started doing this doctoral work and um, most people who do um, sociology or psychology, um, first of all, they butt heads, but also they tend to be interested more in the statistical side of things, uh, quantitative research. Um, and there's almost nobody who really likes theory classes because they're very, very hard to interpret and the nuance and this and that theory was my jam, man. I mean, I was like, this is amazing. This is teaching me so much. And I would argue with things in it. And I would argue with my professors like right in class. And people were just like, how, how are you doing it? Why are you doing this? Like there was a professor once who made a statement about how, um, what was it? Breast augmentation was not feminist. And boy, did I fucking chew him out in class. And I even, the guy was Persian. Okay. Oh. And uh, I, I straight up like the conversation turned to high heels at one point, And he just said like, those are definitely invented by a man. And I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. They were originally used by Persian horse riders. 
sir. <laughs> Do your goddamn homework. <laughs> <laughs> and then oh. at some point in time, he just was like, he just started laughing and he was like, all right, you got me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, what can you say to that? Just, no. Uh-uh. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, God, but no we didn't (laughs) (laughs) i mean it was just it was just too hilarious to me um but like basically because i loved theory and because i was real bad at stats i mean technically i got through like doctoral advanced statistics i think it was a pity thing and they didn't want me in class again so (laughs) um (laughs) bless their hearts they're saints so um Ultimately, though, I just realized that I was interested in both psychology and sociology. And I think that you can't pull them apart. They're inextricable. Like the social structures that exist affect our psychology. And our psychology, in turn, affects how we perpetuate those social structures or how they change. And, you know, so for me, it's like a micro to macro kind of understanding. Um, but I've always been interested in um, how we form our identities. And that's where this all started, really. Um, how do we form our identities? How do we maintain them? What's the difference between our perceived identity and the identities that people put on us socially? You know, like those, those kinds of questions kind of emerged in me and it got me interested more in deviant behavior and social control and deviance in sociology is just it's different from the aggregate normal just means this is what most people do it's not good it's not bad it is what it is um but i did research dealing with bioethics and um like there is a and i can't remember what it's called now Um, I think it's housed under body dysmorphic disorder, but individuals who had uh, amputee identity disorder, I know the labels changed, but people who were deeply troubled by the fact that they felt that they had limbs that they shouldn't. And, um, you know, people would, would say like, well, a doctor can't operate on this person who's otherwise well. And I was like, well, but are they neglecting the mental health of this person? And I think that it's important to point out in this that 98%, that is huge, 98% of people who successfully had limbs removed had an, a, a complete alleviation of symptoms of psychological yeah, distress. So, I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. so going into the bioethics, and, and I didn't necessarily make an argument either way. It was just like, this should be explored. We need to we need to think about this from more angles. But ultimately, looking at deviant behavior, I mean, violent criminals. I wanted to know what made them tick. Why do people become so pathological in their behaviors? It's a really good question. <laughs> yeah. And so when I first started listening to podcasts, you know, um, you know, I had just left a job where I was working to help establish uh, a safe baby court uh, in the child welfare um, system, which is basically, I mean, it, it sounds like what is that, but 
infants and toddlers make up 80% nationwide and 80% in the state of Texas, where I'm from, of children in child welfare. And they're largely pre-verbal um, and they can't, they're, they're therefore the most vulnerable population. Yeah. And, you know, in cases of neglect or drug abuse or things like that with birth parents, a lot of times having their child taken is enough of an impetus to try to fix those things. Some of them just simply lack the education, you know, and so this program um, introduced co-parenting relationships between birth parents and foster parents. So the foster parents would sort of mentor the birth parent and in hopes of keeping the birth parent in the child's life. So even if, even if they ultimately did have to relinquish custody of their child, they could still be involved in their child's life. And I've yeah. seen it successfully happen multiple times and others, they would end up doing everything they needed to do, getting clean, getting mental health help, um, and ultimately be able to be reunified with their child. So very cool. Yeah, it's very cool. But through doing that, I met a lot of birth parents who people would discount and say, God, some people just shouldn't be mothers or, you know, that, that woman, you know, oh God, I remember somebody saying at one of these visits I was observing, somebody saying, I think after one or two kids are taken by CPS, you should have to have a compulsory uh, hysterectomy. And I just thought, that is so sick. That's yeah. so sick. Like, you know, one one day I, you know, and I think this is one of the things that affected me most profoundly in terms of looking at offenders in terms of they didn't, I mean, they didn't start out this way. Now, when I look at birth parents a lot of times, in particular this woman, I just look at it and I, I think this is just God awful. But when I met her, she was at a visit with her two week old infant and she just had tears, just these very quiet tears rolling down her cheeks. She never looked away from that child. Even when people were speaking to her, she'd respond. She could not take her eyes off that baby, but she knew she already knew that baby was going to be taken from her. And it was probably for the best. And basically one of the things that I used to do is after those visits, I would go outside and I would carry a pack of cigarettes with me and I would offer a cigarette because those were really emotional things. And the vast majority of them would smoke. Some of them were like, no, thank you. You know, but we just sit down on the curb and that's what happened with her is we just sit, sat down and um, I just started kind of talking with her and, she ended up opening up about her life and this woman she again this was her ninth child taken but when she was 10 years old her father started pimping her out to gangs for heroin money and in order to keep her compliant both the gangs and her father would dope her up and she essentially was by 14 years old she was a full-blown gang ho and that's the expression they use it's not one i would but um just so that it's explicit what was happening she was being passed yeah. around and um and so her first baby she had when she was 15 and once the child 
was of age, she actually sought out her mother and they had a functional relationship at that point, which is good. good, I mean, she seemed, she seemed like just such a loving, lovely person, but how do you start at 10 years old fed into that system and not end up in a position where you, you lack the resources to be a functional adult. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's really not something you can hold them responsible for. It's, Mm. that's, that's a, I mean, that's one of those, one of those things where my, my inner indignant flares up because that is just, you're the bottom rung if you're somebody that does that to a child as far as I'm concerned. And right. Like I generally, I mean, if you've you've listened to some of my, my my episodes, (laughs) you you know where I stand. I'm kind of a belligerent ass about stop being (laughs) such a bunch of rotten people. (laughs) Right. I got to admit, you know, I have my own facet where I know I am, I have the capacity to be just a horrible bastard. Sure. It's always in reaction to something like that. Yeah. So this is where we're going to break off the interview uh, for the re- this week. We'll come back next Friday with another portion of the interview between Ariel Cooksey, the host of Malice the Podcast, True Crime Stories, and myself. I hope you guys are enjoying it as, as much as we enjoyed talking to each other and getting to know each other a little bit. And I cannot stress enough, if you're into true crime stuff, or even if you're not, check out Malice. It's a fantastic podcast that's available on every platform. I, I and she's fantastic. She's a really smart lady, and I can't stress it enough. Go check out her show, seriously. And other than that, I hope you guys have a great week. And that's what I had to say. Thanks for listening to another episode of I Had to Say It. If you liked what you heard, leave a review, give us a follow, give me some feedback. And if you didn't like what you heard, leave a review, give me a follow, give me some feedback. I'll try and fix it. Check us out on all the social media platforms at I Had to Say It podcast is the trigger for all that stuff for the search term. And if you want, check out the website, www.ihadtosayitpodcast.com. There's links to people that have been involved with the program things i've talked about there are some links available for some merch that we're working on and there are ways to contact us there as well and thanks for listening and i look forward to talking to you again soon